This is Beyond Riel, a UMFM limited series that delves into the history, culture, and challenges facing minority Francophone community in Canada. My name is André Marcheldon. And I am Ian T.D. Thompson. We are excited that you have tuned in as we explore la francophonie in Canada. This series is sponsored by La Société de la Francophonie Manitobaine, the advocate for the Franco-Manitobaine community. This project is also supported by a Taking a Global grant with support from the Canada Service Corps and the Government of Canada. This is the first of our two episodes exploring the history of French in Manitoba. Today, we look at the crucial role Louis Riel and the Métis played in ensuring French and English rights were enshrined in Manitoba's constitution. We then investigate how French rights were not respected and how French education was curtailed for several decades. To guide us on this historical tour, we've invited the historian Jacqueline Blais. Jacqueline Blais, who previously lived in Algeria, France, and Spain, immigrated to Canada in the mid-60s and studied Canadian and Manitoba history. As a reporter for Radio-Canada, she covered these important files and wrote several books on the history of Francophones in Manitoba. Jacqueline previously served as president of the Société de la Francophonie Manitobaine, the SFM, which represents French-speaking Manitobans since 1968. Jacqueline has received numerous awards, including the Order of Manitoba, the province's highest honor for her commitment to Francophone heritage. Jacqueline, welcome to Beyond Riel. Merci. I think a really helpful place to kick us off here would be just kind of to, to explain when did French speakers first start coming to Manitoba at the start of the history? I think we have to go like everything in the history of the West um, and Western provinces of Canada. Uh, we have to think that we think it's 1738. It's the first recorded trip by Jean-Baptiste Laverandry and his father, who were discoverers, voyageurs, businessmen at the same time, because they were exploring the West to figure out if it was true that there was a lot of furs to trade for the kings of France and England. Maybe there were before other voyageurs, but it was not recorded. So we know for a fact that it's 1738. That started a uh, long history of Francophones in Manitoba. Yeah, yeah. So that's the initial starting date, over 200 years here in the province of Manitoba. So one of the key figures in Manitoba is undoubtedly Louis Riel. He is seen as kind of the father of this province, but he also plays a kind of important role in Francophone rights. In your view, what role did Louis Riel play in enshrining French rights in the province? It's a major role. He's considered, and rightly so, as the father of Manitoba. He's also a a father of confederation because thanks to him, Manitoba became the fifth province of the Canadian Confederation. But he's also a strange figure in the sense that some still say nowadays that he was a traitor, while others say he's a hero. And we have this dichotomy, and that's different, this almost schizophrenic picture of a leader who's the only one, the only father of confederation to have been hanged by and whose death penalty was not commuted into prison for life by the prime minister of the time. Johnny MacDonald refused to even entertain the idea that Riel should be pardoned. And still, to this day, Riel has not been exonerated. And we wonder why, and we look at his history, and we see a young man who has no job and just walks around the colony during the summer. And in the fall of 1869, his cousins come and get him and say, you have to come. The surveyors from Canada are here, and they are measuring our lands. 
And Riel knows what that means. It means that Canada is coming into the Red River colony and that the Métis, which form the majority of the population, have not been consulted. He knows that the Hudson's Bay Company has sold Rupert's Land, which is the whole of the West. He knows that it has been sold to the Canadian government a few years before. And he knows also because he's coming back from down east, he knows that things will change. And as a Métis trained, even though in Lower Canada, he's also trained in all history of the Métis, he knows that he has to do something to make sure that the leadership from the Métis population of the Red River Colony is not forgotten. Therefore, he's almost a natural born leader. And after a few meetings with his cousins, the English and Anglophone cousins, they get together and they form what is called a provisional government. And we have to remember that in 1869, in the Red River Colony, we have the Métis population and the French Canadians. We also have the English Canadians coming from Upper Canada, which is now Ontario, and who just want pure straight annexation to Canada. They want to take over this territory and put it together with Ontario. And Riel says, no, this is our land. The concept of land is very strong. And you have somebody who's ready to take over and somebody who's ready to consult. So why is he doing this? Well, it's his calling, basically. After numerous meetings, and uh, of course, the government of Ottawa is not very happy with what's happening, and sends a couple of emissaries who are trying to convince Riel to just not do anything. But he is extremely savvy. He says to the Canadian emissaries, okay, you say you have proposals. Here is meet the people in the yard of the Fort Gary, and it's January minus 30, and for hours, the Canadian emissary will explain what is going to happen. Based on that, the provisional government will meet again. Uh, Riel is elected president of that government, and they draw a list of rights. This is where it comes from. This is the Constitution of Manitoba. This is what became the Constitution of Manitoba. And in this list of rights, they include language rights because they want to protect the English-speaking members of the colony. The Anglophones are in the minority, and the Francophones say, well, we have to protect our brothers and sisters. Therefore, we include that everything should be in French and in English at the legislative level and at the courts level, and the left and non governor governor has to be bilingual. And second thing they ask is to have a school system that is professional. Why? Because the colony is divided between Catholics and Protestants. So they're protecting school rights. They avoid uh, what's happening in Ontario and somewhere else. So this is why we say Riel had the vision of seeing what could happen. I just want to kind of go back to one of the ideas that you mentioned that I found really interesting, which is when crafting out these rights, it was the protection of English that was the driver. But at the same time, now I feel like it's enshrining French rights. Is that a correct sort of assessment of the situation? Or am I, am I looking at it? It's, it, it, is, it feels a bit topsy-turvy from what we know about French rights in, in the 21st century. Well, what happened is basically Ontario decided to come to Manitoba. And very quickly, after 1870, they became the majority. Therefore, what is the need to protect, protect French language rights? Because they are a minority and English rights, but they are the majority. So let's do what we need to do. So one thing I was hoping we could uh, maybe focus on at this point were specifically French education in Manitoba. 
So you were touching on that a little bit before, how that was meant to be protected and it wasn't the Manitoba Constitution. But can you talk a little bit about how French education wasn't always protected in Manitoba? Well, in French, the 1896 uh, agreement opens the door to have French taught at the end of the day and taught as of 3.30 catechism. The schools had the right, the teachers had the right to teach in French from 3 o'clock to 3.30. This is what the priest in the church called the, the broom behind the door. And they were teaching French and they were teaching catechism. And the lawyer agreement had a clause that we still use in Canadian politics, which is where the numbers weren't. In other words, if you have enough kids in a classroom, you're entitled to that 3.30 education. In comes a, a family in um, Union Point. A family of francophones who's moved, seven kids, they almost almost filled the, the school. And the father, Mr. Nolet, asked uh, for his kids to have a French-speaking teacher, or at least bilingual. And the school board says, well, you don't have the right to ask for that. And he says, oh, yes, I do. And he goes to, they go to see the deputy minister of education. And this is a man who had a huge influence on French education in Winnipeg, in Manitoba. So they went to see Mr. Fletcher, who says to the school trustees, of course, Mr. Nolet is right. He has a right to ask for that. You have to comply. Find a teacher who's bilingual. Well, they do find a teacher who's bilingual, a woman, but she's Protestant. That doesn't really work. So the parents go to court, and during the proceedings, the um, government is having a, yellow, a little girl to testify. Her name is Pulcheri Nolet. And the poor Pulcheri, well, she's been talking French all her life. On the down low, as we say now, and uh, she can't really answer the questions in English. And the free press, we're talking 1913 here, the free press has a very astute reporter somewhere along the lines who's thinking, okay, why did she go to English school and she can't answer the questions in English? What is going on? What is the situation actually in Manitoba? The free press is going to investigate and will basically tour the province it's going to go to German schools, Polish schools, schools from Hungary, Mennonite schools, everywhere. And the reporter, from what we know, we don't know who, asked the kids in the recess, so do you know how to count in English? Can you count backwards? How do you say this in English? How do you say that in English? And the report that came out on January 13th is the first of 61 editorials. And during that period of editorials, it's very difficult because... The school system in Manitoba is being killed because the kids don't know how to speak English. The kids don't know how to count in English. And half of the kids who should be in school are not in school. Remember, school is not mandatory. So poor Prince Sherry, she starts something she doesn't know she's starting. And after the editorials, all these 63 editorials, the Liberal Party of Manitoba decides this is going to be our platform. This is what we're going to say. We're going to say we're going to make school mandatory and we're going to impose one language in schools, which is English. By the way, we'll give the vote to women. So everybody will be happy. We're talking about 1914, 1915, 1916, two years in the First World War. And everybody realizes that if you don't have a population that knows how to read, you can't be competitive. You cannot have a role, whether it's a, a role of political role or economic role, you cannot have a province that is thriving. So there is a real side and a very interesting side to the plans of having school mandatory. It's important. The Francophones are 
made aware because they have some MLAs present. They're made aware of that and they decided that, no, they can't accept that kind of schooling. English only, no, they can't do that. So while the law is being drafted and discussed in the, in the House, the um, 219 Provencher, which is the mayor's office and the city hall building on the top floor, a number of men meet and decide that they're going to fight it. And how are they going to fight it? Well, it's very simple. They are going to organize an underground school system that is going to be teaching in French all across the province and going to be connected to the church. So basically, they have no choice but to comply to the new law that says mandatory school. And as Catholic, they figured or they, they feel that they should be in charge of their children's education, not the state. This is an interesting aspect, but they will comply with that. And they will have, quote unquote, the best schools possible. And for 50 years, the Association d'Education des Canadiens Français du Manitoba will run this parallel school with many, many schools. And you will have people who will say to you, I was hiding my books. They're probably in their 80s telling you this. And it is the truth. I had in one of my classes, somebody, a, a man who was very young at the time, who was um, going to school in Notre-Dame-de-Lourdes and whose job was to check out the new cars or the different cars or the strange cars that would come in the village. And he knew all the cars in the village. You can bet on that. And once he would see that car, he would know that it was the English-speaking inspector. So somebody was responsible to go to the principal and say, we have the inspector in the school. Oof, everybody was hiding the books and start teaching and answering in English. And it is a well-known fact. Um, one of the strategies, somebody told me that one of the strategies in La Broquerie, for example, was to send the kid who said, oh, there's a different car in the village that came in. The kid would be sent to the principal and not be afraid of it. And the principal would give him a bunch of red pencils. And with the red pencils, the kid would go from class to class, to classroom to classroom. And the teachers knew. No word would be exchanged. We don't force the kids to lie. They know English books reappear, French books disappear, and there we go. Until the 60s, the school issue was, quote-unquote, dealt with. Later on, the 60s being what they were, there were uh, years and decades of change. At that time, Pierre Trudeau came on board and decided to have the Official Languages Act put forward. And in Manitoba, we had a premier who was elected, the youngest one of history of Manitoba. His name was Ed Schreier. And it was the first leftist government elected in Manitoba. And Mr. Schreier used to be an MP in Ottawa. And he spoke French. And he had no problems when the Association d'Education, that became the Société Franco-Manitobaine, went to see him and said, you know, we need to have our kids brought up in French because there's a, an official languages act at the federal level. And our kids are going to work for the federal government. And they're going to lose our kids. And there was a really a loss of brain trust in the 60s because of that. So Schreier said, okay, and gave three things to the Francophones as celebrating the 100 years of Manitoba. One, he gave a faculty of education that's still uh, functioning at the University of St. Boniface. He gave what's called uh, the Culture Center. He built that project and Bill 113. Bill 113 was a law that allowed the teaching of French. There was a catch. And this is where everybody was happy when he first put it out. And then everybody realized, oh, my God, we have to go through that. And what that was, 
was that every time a parent wanted to have their kids being taught in French, they had to go and ask permission to the school board. That created a lot of school crisis. I don't know how old you are, but maybe you remember that some schools were actually closed down. Parents met by the hundreds of school trustees and asked over and over and over to have their kids being taught in French. So if your kid was going to school in first year, you had to ask permission. Next year, you had to ask permission to go and ask permission for the second year, and then third year. So the parents were saying, give us a school from French school. It'll be easier. No, no. Give us a network. No, no. So Bill 13 was a blessing. And at the same time, it was a thorn in the side of parents. And they had to fight. And the issue was resolved only in 1982 when Pierre Trudeau had the Canadian Charter of Rights. In it, there's an article that says, Section 23, parents should have the right to control the schooling of their kids. This is what we call by and for, schooling by the parents for the parents. And this is how most of the French school boards were being born. DSFM, Division Scolaire Manitoba, is born of that. But if you look at Section 23 was approved in 1982, and this DSFM was created in 1994, you have 12 years of challenges all across the country, province by province, parents had to go and ask to have their own school board. And the last one who got it were the uh, BC parents two or three years ago. This is a very long process, but this is how the um, school rights, francophones were protected. Now you have for each student in the SFM, you have five students in immersion, which tells you that Canadians understood and I still understand the message. Bilingualism is part of the fabric of Canada. And if you look at immigrants, a lot of them speak French too. So that's how it uh, unfolded. Today we learned that Louis Riel and the Métis were looking to protect French and English rights. Unfortunately, this equal protection of French and English was not maintained in the subsequent years. An example of this are the restrictions placed on French education in Manitoba for several decades. Thank you for listening to Beyond Riel. Join us on our next episode when we explore the French linguistic crisis of the 1980s. This eventful period marked a turning point of French rights in Manitoba. Executive producers and hosts are André Mathieu-Don and Ian T.D. Thompson. Technical producer is Frédéric Demers and consulting producer is Gabrielle Tuga. The music you hear on Beyond Riel is by Rayana. To hear more of her music, visit rayana.com. That's R-A-Y-A-N-N-A-H.com. Beyond Real is a UMFM 101.5 limited series broadcasted out of the University of Manitoba. For more information on the series, visit umfm.com. Si seulement vous étiez réel